the stressor can be real or imagined. It can be in the environment or something that's in our own mind, right? And so when we're thinking those extreme thoughts, our brains really respond to to those um, with the fight or flight response. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Before we get started, just a few notes on today's content. The views expressed here only reflect our opinions and don't represent the CWC or the University of Florida or the mental health professions as a whole. Additionally, some content may be sensitive for students who have experienced trauma. Please reach out if you need additional support. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash and Dr. Felicia Brown, licensed clinical psychologists at the CWC, discuss working with anxiety. Hello, welcome. My guest today is Dr. Felicia Brown, who is a licensed clinical psychologist at the CWC, and she's been a licensed clinical psychologist for 21 years, so brings a lot of experience to us today. We are here today to talk about anxiety and how Felicia commonly helps students navigate their anxiety. So welcome, Felicia. It's great to have you. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm excited to have this conversation. In, in your experience, how common is anxiety in terms of the students who reach out for counseling? Incredibly common. I, I think most students have anxiety at some point. We see a lot of them in our center, and I think there are many, many more that we don't see in our center wrestling with it out there on their own, too. And so I'm hoping that some of those students have a chance to hear this conversation as well and can learn some things, even if they don't decide to reach out for counseling, that they can use in their own lives to help them with the anxiety. Great. Yeah. What a, in your, from your perspective, what is anxiety? Because that's one of those big, almost generic words these days. So I really look at anxiety as the manifestation of our natural and normal fight or flight system. And I'm guessing that most students have learned about fight or flight in some biology or psych class somewhere along the line, um, maybe even back in high school. But just kind of as a refresher, the fight or flight system is thought to be an adaptive from an evolutionary perspective system. It's how our body responds to stress or anxiety. And one important point is that our bodies only have this one way of responding to stress, regardless of what kind of stress it is or how intense the stress is. Our bodies just have this one way of responding. And we know that there are characteristic physiological changes that happen when the fight or flight system is activated. So we know that the cardiovascular system becomes involved, the the heart speeds up and pumps harder to get the blood out to the extremities. It's an activating system, right? And so if you think about what fight or flight means, it means that the body is preparing to either deal with some kind of threat. If you think back to like an animal like a lion, a lion would carry characteristically fight, right? When under stress, some animals would run, run away 
humans have versions of both of those responses. It's an activating response, and so the systems of the body respond accordingly. So the heart would pump harder and faster to get the blood out to the, the limbs so that you could be prepared to, to run away or fight if you needed to. The breathing is impacted. It becomes more rapid and more shallow. Our thought processes are, are also impacted. The thought becomes more fear-based, more survival-based, and as a kind of byproduct or consequence of that, the, the more thinking parts of our brain, the better thinking parts of our brain that are responsible for things like reasoning and problem-solving, um, logical thinking, those parts of the brain are, are kind of shut off at that point um, because the the fear-based thinking, which is housed in a different part of our brain, takes over. There are, are hormonal changes, um, specifically with adrenaline and cortisol. Those are activating hormones that flood our body and, again, get our body ready to, to do what it needs to do. Um, and then there are um, other functions that are kind of put on hold, like our digestive system is kind of put on hold. Because if you think about it, if you have to run away from a lion, it doesn't really matter when whether or not you've digested your food. But all of those systems can have kind of byproducts that show up in terms of anxiety. So um, for example, someone who has a lot of stomach distress when they're really anxious. I go through phases where, where that happens for me, um, and that's one of those direct correlates of the, the digestive system being altered to accommodate for, for other systems being more in charge, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah, people, yeah, it makes great sense. I'm thinking people can have diarrhea, they can have mm -hmm. vomiting, they can have to pee really urgently, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, sweating, like fluids. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, there can be a lot of fluids involved in going into the fight or flight response. Absolutely. And kind of a, an extreme reaction of fight or flight response would be a panic attack, right? And that's kind of a, a sudden, well, seemingly sudden and acute onset of a lot of physical symptoms of anxiety. And those feel very uncomfortable in our body, and they're also very distressing um, and scary. So if students had that experience, you'll know it when I'm talking about it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know, over time, this system can become really dysregulated because it's designed to work in a certain way. It's designed to respond to an acute stressor and then to settle back down um, and allow the body to return to kind of a baseline level. Felicia, when you say an, an acute stressor, what is that? It can be something that is, you know, it can be anything that's happening in your life, really. And it can be something that happens just as you're going about your day, but it could also just be something that you're thinking about. And again, the body only has this one way of responding, right? And it doesn't matter if it's if how real the stressor really is, right? So like when we're feeling really anxious about, I don't know, maybe finals, finals week, those are not typically life-threatening, right? Um, the odds of dying as a result of taking a final are, are really quite low. However, the again, we've only got this one way of responding. And so, you know, the body's going to respond in that same way as if it were responding to, you know, the threat of you being eaten by a lion. A life or death situation. It can feel to the body like a life or death situation. Exactly. And I want to circle back because even though we're going to talk more generally about anxiety today, 
based on what you've already explained, it's easy to see why people with test anxiety often do really poorly on their tests. That's a really good point because again, the the thinking problem solving parts of the brain can can essentially shut down. The reason for that is if we are about to be devoured by a lion, then it's not evolutionarily uh, advantageous for us to trip out about the angle of the sunlight bouncing off of the leaves on the trees or like we're not, it's not healthy for us to notice things in really great detail and to be able to do those more complex calculations when we just need to be putting all of our energy into mobilizing ourselves to safety. Exactly. Instincts take over at that point. One thing that when I was, we get a lot of students who struggle with some kind of test anxiety, that even just explaining all of that can sometimes go a long way for students to understand what's happening for them and, and then trying to find some ways to bring that, that wild kind of nervous system response back down so that they can pull up that all the information may be in there. Like, right. These are often really well-prepared students who go into these tests, but they, they just can't access the information. Yeah. And a quick little tool for test anxiety is to do some kind of mental activity that will essentially reconnect the frontal lobe, right? Which is, again, that part of the brain that houses the reasoning and problem solving and logical thought functions. The calculus equations, right? The calculus equations, the anatomy body parts. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Mental math can go a long way. So just making up little math problems in your head that make you think, but aren't too challenging. So, you know, I don't know, 17 times three or 56 minus 18, right? Those little mental math problems will, you know, help you to to regain those reasoning and um, other important thought processes for a test or picking a category and coming up with as many things as you can in that category. So flowers, right? And then mentally naming as many different flowers as you can think of. So these are quick things that you can do when you're in that moment, when you're you know, staring at the computer screen and you don't know how to, your mind has gone blank and you don't know how to answer the test question. The 60 seconds that you might take to name a bunch of flowers or do some little mental math problems can, you know, can go a long way in helping you to kind of compose yourself, regain those higher order mental functions and be able to reshift your focus back onto your test. Wow, it's almost like going through a like a warm-up drill. Oh, that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah. I have often encouraged students like in larger classrooms to to look around and see how many colors that they can identify in the room or Yeah, same idea. Having other things that are more internal may be helpful for students because sometimes when we start looking around the room, that can drive up more anxiety too, right? Right. Seeing everybody else doing their test and looking calm and they seem, they seem like they're really good. And here I am freaking out. Yeah. Those are great ideas, but it, but it sounds like we won't nerd out too much about the science, but putting yourself through those warm up drills mentally literally helps that physiological arousal begin to drop back down again. It does. And like that part of our brain that houses the information we need for the test can slowly come back online again. Exactly. 
Yeah. And I think the other main thing that I would want to point out about anxiety um, in the in the long run is that I, th- I feel like we're all walking around a lot of the time in just chronic overdrive of our fight or flight systems. And an analogy that I really like is that of a, a pot of boiling water, right? So if you picture putting a pot of water on the stove, crank the heat to high, right? And eventually the water boils, right? And that's kind of akin to our our nervous systems becoming activated in fight or flight. And then if you turn off the heat, eventually the water will cool down, right? Um, Back to a room temperature. If you turn the heat up again, though, before the water has kind of returned to that room temperature, it's going to take a lot less time for the water to boil the second time around, right? And that's kind of how our nervous systems work too. So if there's, if your fight or flight system is activated and, and there's another stressor that comes up before the system has had a chance to normalize itself, it's going to take a lot, a lot less time for the water to boil again or for the fight or flight system to become fully activated again. And when you're under the kind of constant pressure that most college students are, that happens again and again and again, right? And so it can be that the the fight or flight system never really gets a chance to settle down before the next hit, so to speak, the next test, the next the next organizational meeting, um, the next social encounter, whatever it is, right? It's it's pretty consistent for for college students. And so if the system never gets a chance to settle down, you're you're continuously working under um, an activated activated fight or flight system. So much Um, so that I think a lot of us don't even realize that our fight or flight system is totally activated all the time. Yeah. We're walking around with muscle tension and um, somewhat fear-based thought um, with our hearts pounding and our thoughts spinning and, you know, just wondering why we're so stressed all the time. Yeah. And I, we, are going to talk more broadly than the coronavirus pandemic, but we are recording mm. this from home in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. And I'm just thinking, shaking people who are already pretty chronically stressed out, right? And adding in this whole other huge layer of uncertainty to the picture. Yeah. And I think another thing that's really been difficult with the coronavirus is that the threats are real, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing on the news that people are dying around us. And some of us have, you know, actually um, known people who have become ill, um, or have even died from the coronavirus. So if the body is still responding to all the normal stressors, and, and then some very real threats on top of that, you know, we can only imagine what what that impact is. It's really mind boggling to even think about. Yeah. Even talking about this, I can feel my own body start to ramp up, you know, like just, I was holding my breath and I had to remind myself to take a deep breath and slow down and like, yeah, Yeah. it's a scary time. It is. And you can't talk yourself out of it as easily. It's like you can, you know, maybe kind of talk yourself down and remind yourself that a test isn't life threatening, right? That the anxiety is not really needed in this situation. And in fact, it does you a disservice. But with the coronavirus, the the threat is real, right? It's you can't really talk yourself out of that in the same kind of way. Even if it's not your physical health, there's all these other um, aspects to it that are also real for our students. 
Yes. Okay. So it's good timing for this conversation, but even with, I was thinking Mm -hmm. even with real ongoing stressors, is it healthy to find ways to try to help the body have moments of calm and relaxation? Yeah. So when I'm working with students who are coming into the Center for Anxiety, the physiology is one of the the main ways that we can intervene with anxiety and then working with the thoughts, right? Um, Because as we've talked about earlier today, the thoughts do become more fear-based, more survival-based. So learning some strategies to really tune into your own thoughts and then kind of coach yourself through them can also be really helpful. So those two main things, working with the physiology and working with the thoughts are how I would typically work with students coming in for anxiety. That's great. And that's helpful to think that there are really these two main pieces to this and that there are some skills and awarenesses that can help students with both of those areas. And I'm thinking they, you get the most benefit if you can work with both the physical Mm -hmm. stuff and the mental stuff that comes along with this stress response. Okay. So I would love to, because you're, you're a a therapist that I really admire who who actually has a fair number of tools or concrete kind of ways of helping students begin to develop these practices that can be helpful. And so you don't need to share all of them, but I wonder if if we could go back to the physical stuff. So if I'm a person who really does have that, you know, high level fight or flight, it's very easy for me to go into that mode. I've been having that response for a long time. I get it in a number of situations, social situations, academic situations, any kind of public speaking, mm-hmm. let's say, like I, I feel it all the time. How would you help me begin to work with my physical stuff? So first of all, are you willing to work at it? Are you willing to put a little bit of time into it? That's such an important question. Why do you, why do you, I thought you're the therapist. I thought you were going to fix it for me. (laughs) If I could wave a magic wand, Sarah, I would, I would completely do that. But it doesn't really work like that, right? If you think about, you know, this is a chronic state that your body is in and you've now quite possibly develop thinking habits that go along with that. It takes a little bit of time to to kind of recalibrate and unwind those. And it does require actually trying the skills, right? Um, and practicing them and becoming comfortable with them and then integrating them into your daily life. We know from tons and tons of research that it's the persistent practice that that gives you the the benefits, their long-term and over time benefits more than anything else. Although they work in the short term as well, but, but it's kind of like, you know, a a band-aid versus, I don't know, an overhaul of the system. And so one of the, the first things that I would talk about with students is, you know, are you willing to work at this a little bit? Because it's not something that I can just bestow upon you, right? Sometimes students get into the trap of, well, yeah, I know about these things. I know about different ways to breathe and I know about yoga and muscle relaxation, right? I know about them and they don't work for me. And odds are really good that that the student came to that conclusion after just trying a couple of things a couple of times. And no, they're not going to work that well if you just do them a couple of times. It does require that, that continuous effort 
it sounds like you're talking about a kind of deep relearning. Yeah. I like that way of looking at it. But the thing is, it, it doesn't require a ton of effort. It just has to be continuous. So there are really very few things in life where five minutes a day makes a difference. But five minutes a day to work on your anxiety can actually make a tremendous difference. You know, a simple breathing exercise like learning how to do diaphragmatic breathing can go a long way. Five minutes of breathing in a way that incorporates your your abdomen and just doing that for five minutes a day doesn't even have to be five solid minutes you can break it up over the course of the day but done you know more days than not can can really start to to make a difference in your anxiety it'll calm you down in the moment and then over time it's kind of like a doorway into the fight or flight system if you practice it over time then i liked what you said before about kind of a retraining right kind of retrains that system um, and allows you to influence it. It's almost like you found a way to hack in with this. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Okay. So let's say I'm in your I'm in your office, Felicia, and I'm saying, yes, please sign me up. Um, I'm willing to work on this. I'm willing to practice. I can set my cell phone down for five minutes a day. Okay. And begin to use this this diaphragmatic breathing, which that's such a fancy word. And you also <laughs> use the word abdomen. And I think that means my belly. Um, but yes. so, so help me, you know, my, help me, help me learn this style of breathing. Um, walk me through it. Okay. So what I'm going to ask you to do, if you're walking across campus, then this isn't going to be so easy. You're probably going to want to try this again a little bit later, but it's easy to learn if you put one hand on your belly um, and the other on your chest. Okay. Do you know what the diaphragm is? You know, I know I, I, I should, cause I do yoga and I hear about it all the time, but I still don't know. Okay. So it's, it's essentially a, like a, a muscle between the chest cavity and the abdominal cavity. Have you ever had the hiccups? I'm guessing you have. Oh yes. Oh yes. So if you think about where you feel it, when you have the hiccups, the hiccups are actually a spasm of the diaphragm. Okay. That helps. Yeah. It's above my belly button, right? It's not, it's, it's okay. Yes. It's kind of in uh -huh. between my, my chest and Your my belly chest. button. Okay. Exactly. I can feel it. Yeah. Cool. Right. So when you breathe in a way that incorporates the diaphragm, it naturally allows you to take a deeper breath because you're expanding the chest cavity without having to actually worry or think about taking a deep breath. So a lot of times when people hear deep breathing, do deep breathing, they're like, <gasps> you know, trying to suck in more air, right? Which actually um, that, that activates that response. It does. It? <gasps> it's not effective at all. Exactly. Um, but this is a way that will allow you to get a deeper breath without actually trying to take a deeper breath. So if you have one hand on your chest and the other on your belly, when you're doing it correctly, the hand that's on your belly is going to be moving up and down the hand on your chest is going to be mostly still. Not totally still because they're in there, right? And they're going to be filling up with air too. So, but relative to the hand on your belly, the chest hand is going to be is going to be relatively still. This part is a little counterintuitive because you might think when I breathe in, I'm going to pull my belly in and it's actually the opposite. With a little bit of practice, it'll seem totally normal. But so when you breathe in, you're going to use your stomach muscles, okay? And push out your stomach. So as you breathe in, you're going to push out your stomach and let the belly kind of fill up with air. And then when you breathe out, you're going to pull in with your stomach. I think of it as like pulling in my stomach to help the air go up. So you're going to breathe in, 
push your belly out and then breathe out and pull your belly in. Breathe in, push your belly out. Breathe out, pull your belly in. Should I be trying to make my breaths longer or just let them come naturally? That's a really good question. So once you have the, the kind of breathe in, push your belly out, breathe out, pull your belly in motion, and that feels pretty comfortable, then yes, we're going to add the next step, which is slowing down. And so we're going to start with a count of four. So it's going to go like this. Breathe in, push your belly out. Two, three, four. Breathe out, pull your belly in. Two, three, four. Breathe in, push your belly out. Two, three, four. Breathe out, pull your belly in. Two, three, four. And you can play around with that count. Four is, is kind of typical for for the average adult, but for some people, three feels much more comfortable. For some people, five or even six, especially if you've done other kinds of breathing work like yoga, find that a longer count feels better for you, just whatever works. Four felt really good for me. I felt like it was enough time to get the air in, but then five would have, I would have been kind of running out of, I would, you know, and so it sounds like the goal is for this to feel really comfortable. And it did, it felt relaxing. I didn't have that sense that I was running out of air, which sounds like that would just kind of undo the benefit of this practice. So that was pretty easy to learn, right? Yeah. And I feel better. Do you? That's fantastic. Yeah. So five minutes a day. And, you know, initially when you're learning it, it is helpful to have your, your hands on your chest and on your belly, but once you get the, the hand of the, the hang of the motion, you won't have to keep your hands there. You won't have to deliberately push with your stomach muscles and pull with your stomach muscles um, because the air will just naturally kind of round out your stomach. And so ideally the stomach is going to be doing the work in this breathing exercise. It's important when you're first learning not to try to practice when you're really stressed out or anxious or especially if you're having a panic attack because it will it will backfire. You need to get really comfortable with this through practice sessions when you're relatively calm and then most people after, you know, a handful of practice sessions can start using it. Um, in any kind of stressful situation or to help you fall asleep. I use this to help me go to sleep all the time. It's kind of my go-to strategy for when I'm having any kind of sleep difficulty. But for test anxiety, for you know, getting ready to have to give a presentation um, or speak in a meeting, or even if you're just sitting there and you're noticing that your spots, your thoughts are starting to spiral, you can go into this type of breathing and and once you're familiar with it, it, it should calm you down. I, I think it's so helpful what you said about don't try this. Don't try to learn this and practice this at first when you're in the really stressful situation. Yeah. And I, but I was thinking that's probably also adaptive for us that we weren't meant to learn a new skill when we were under attack. That's a really good point. That's a great point. Okay. But then once it becomes more natural for us under less stressful circumstances, we can begin to draw upon it in those stressful situations. Really, it sounds like really the sooner the better. The sooner we notice that we're ramping up, the better it is to begin to apply this. And continuing to practice just 
as a point of practicing five minutes a day. You know, I really just want to keep emphasizing that. So even when you, you are at the point where it's comfortable and where you are using it on a regular basis for managing stress and anxiety, continuing to keep those five minute practice sessions. Okay. That's yeah. helpful. Every day, even if it's not a stressful day, yeah. every day. Yeah. Okay. Or as many days as you can. Yeah. Okay. And it's, I'm imagining finding a quiet and relatively secure place to practice this, whether that's, a, you know, in the li- in some corner of the library or mm-hmm. my bedroom or, you know, against a tree on campus, but somewhere where I can close my eyes and really just tune into my body and not worry um, that someone's going to come after me or that, you know, that I'm feeling really awkward and exposed. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm thinking about a recent situation where right right before the coronavirus, where I had to give a talk to a group of very distinguished academics, and I oh, felt boy. yeah I felt very uh, going into it. I felt like oh who am I? What do I have to what do I have to say? You know like that imposter syndrome that mm-hmm. and I noticed that my my body was feeling anxious and I was starting to breathe more rapidly and get sweaty right before mm-hmm. I went up to talk. I was able to use some breathing to begin to calm my body down, but I noticed that my mind was still racing and being really hard on me and like still kind of asking me, you know, unhelpful questions like mm-hmm. who do you think you are kind mm-hmm. of questions. And so I wonder if we might transition to talking about the mental side sure. of anxiety and how do we work with that? What's going on in our heads? Yeah. So I'm loving it that you were so aware of what your thoughts were in in that moment, right? And you mentioned imposter syndrome, which I'm guessing is tied in with some kind of fear. Right. So what would you say the fears were? I mean, the fear was uh, I'm not good enough. They're going to all see that I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to be embarrassed, ashamed. You know, in this instance, I was representing my counseling center. So was I going to represent the counseling center in a bad way? What stands out to me about those thoughts is that they're they're kind of extreme, right? And so I get, I guess. I mean, that's nice of you to say. Didn't seem like, like that to you in <laughs> no, the moment. No. no. Well, if you think about, you said that you were afraid you were going to fail, right? Which I think is is a part of imposter syndrome, but it's also just a part of having to survive in the competitive environment that is UF, right? Everything is a competition, and um, and I think we're well aware of that all the time. Students certainly are. But failing, that's really kind of a a black and white term, right? Or another word for that might be it's kind of a catastrophic term. So I'm wondering now how you would define failure. So if you were to fail in that situation um, in giving that talk, what would that look like? I guess it would look like people thinking I was stupid. So what would you be doing or or saying so that people would think you were stupid? Uh, I, would, I might be tripping over my words. I might be, 
sometimes when I give PowerPoint presentations, I feel like I, I do too much reading. When I get nervous, I read off the slides rather than being natural. And then maybe the things that I decided to talk to them about, what if they weren't relevant? So what if I was just like talking about things that didn't fit for them or weren't helpful for them? So a lot of thinking about what other people are thinking, right? We call, yeah. Definitely, definitely. We call that mind reading, right? Um, so. <laughs> because I'm trying to like, because I'm imagining what other, how other people yeah, are Yeah, and when me. we do that, we usually are imagining that they're thinking negative things about us or that they're judging us in some way, right? Yeah, but people are actually a lot more, well, one, people are a lot more focused on themselves <laughs> um, than on us, right? Um, and people are actually a lot more forgiving than, than you would imagine, right? Or that we're thinking about at least in those kinds of moments. You mentioned tripping over your words. I think when you go back over this podcast, Sarah, you're going to see that I've tripped over my words a number of times already, right? Um, but I'm hoping that you're not thinking that this is a failure of a of a podcast, right? No, I haven't. I haven't even noticed. I've been so enjoying the conversation. So you're absolutely right. I think I've been more self conscious about how I'm doing in this conversation and th than than you. So exactly. once again, you're right. Yeah. That's the point, right? Um, you're, you're focusing more on your own performance um, and less on mine. And I'm guessing that if you did notice that I'm tripping over my words occasionally, then you would be pretty forgiving, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's just natural. It's, it's part of the a, process. Not a big deal, right? No, no. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so being able to kind of tune into your thoughts and that takes a little bit of practice um, but most people can get quite good at it can you guess how many thoughts we have in our head all day i mean honestly i i have no idea it's like 70 to a hundred thousand thoughts oh my goodness in a day right yeah oh my 70 to a hundred thousand thoughts a day yeah. i was gonna say like a thousand or two yeah, a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, a lot more than that. Yeah. Wow. So there's no way that we can be aware on a conscious level of all of those thoughts, right? Or I mean, you know, become a full-time job to track all of your thoughts. There's there's no way that you can do that, but you can become really good at looking for patterns in your thoughts and identifying some some key kinds of thoughts that in the in the world of psychology we would refer to as um, cognitive distortions or twisted thinking, or when I used to work with kids, we called it stinking thinking, right? Um, still applicable for adults. But, and there, there are names for patterns of thought that have been identified, and you've hit upon several of them right here, and there are several more. But catastrophic thought is one that really is prominent with anxiety. Catastrophic thought is thoughts where you ever have thoughts where you kind of hop from one um, one thing to another and before you know it someone is dead in a ditch or um, you failed the exam and your whole life is ruined because now you're not going to get into into med school and you're going to have to pick a new career and you're never going to be happy right those kinds of thoughts it's so easy to get from I'm um, having a hard time focusing studying on this exam to you know, my career is, is just not going to happen and I'm never going to be happy, right? It's a, it's a yes, quick and yes. easy pathway to it those really kinds of It really is. Okay. Yeah. 
So catastrophic thoughts, extreme thoughts, or what we would call um, polarized or black and white thoughts. So, um, you know, if I don't get 100 on this test, then, then it's essentially failing it, right? Or if I trip over my words in a presentation, right, then I'm not representing the center appropriately, or people are going to think I'm stupid, immediately getting to a, a really negative conclusion those catastrophic thoughts or, or, um, extreme thoughts, extreme thoughts, black or white thinking. Yes. Yep. Mind reading. You pointed out, assuming that other people are thinking negative things about us or judging us. Felicia, what I'm hearing is that you have a lot of names for patterns of thought Mm -hmm. that I just, you know, when I'm not paying attention to myself, I just think are totally normal, natural, this is just how it is. And, and you're saying, no, there are names for these yes. that psychologists have developed and you know, really call them cognitive distortions yes. or you know, problematic patterns of thought mm-hmm. for us. And the, it, I'm just thinking the more that we can identify and, and name things, that, that there's a power in, in and of itself in doing that. Name it to tame it, right? It's, you know, we, we feel such relief when we know that one other people are dealing with these same things and two there's a name for it right so yeah um so becoming aware naming it and then learning to work with those thoughts by challenging them right so coming up and this takes practice but coming up with a counter statement so if my thought is oh, my mind just went blank and there was an awkward pause in my presentation and now it's ruined, right? So that's extreme thinking, it's catastrophic thinking. And no, for my presentation to really be ruined, I would probably have to, I don't know, not do it at all, right? Um, This was just a a little slip that probably no one would would ever notice, right? So coming up with a a challenge statement kind of coke coaching yourself through and doing that in a kind of repeated and systematic way. So every time. Is it helpful in developing a statement to think about, well, I don't judge people when they trip up on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So you want the challenge statement to be realistic, right? You want it to be believable and you want it to kind of directly address or undo, if you will, the kind of distortion that it was. So if it, it was a mind reading distortion, exactly like you're saying, reminding yourself that um, that people probably weren't judging you in the way that you're thinking, right? Or that you don't judge other people. And so they're probably not judging you as well. And like I said, you do want it to be a realistic statement. You can't just take the opposite, right? So if I really felt like, you know, I had a rough time giving a presentation, telling myself, oh no, my presentation was fantastic. I'm just plain not going to believe that, right? My brain is going to reject that idea. But being, looking at it more realistically, like, well, you know, the audience really seemed to be paying attention to me and people asked a lot of questions when I brought this subject up. But yeah, I did kind of forget what I, where I was going with this point, right? Um, And that's a great, I was just going to do a follow-up that once I got into that particular talk, I, we had such a great time. It really flowed. People were contributing and paying attention. mm -hmm. And it was really only at the end where I 
made kind of an on the fly decision as I was wrapping up to share something about myself that felt kind of vulnerable. It was related to the topic, but it felt kind of vulnerable. Uh And I felt kind of awkward when I shared that. And so I had had this great time with these people, but the very last thing I did felt clumsy and awkward and exposing. Mm -hmm. And I, after I left, I really had to work hard to remind myself that that last one, I don't know that they perceived it the way that I did. Right. Right. And, but two, even if they did, that didn't detract from the bulk of the, of the experience. And, you know, and I, but I had to like really a few hours where I was just kind of working that over for myself until I could settle down about it. Yeah. And I think that's normal. When you see a presentation, what parts do you remember? Do you remember the the little mistakes that someone might've made along the way? Or do you remember, well, you tell me, what do you remember? I think if it's meaningful or am I, or I'm engaged in it, Mm -hmm. then I remember, then I remember the meaningfulness and the engagement. If it's um, really boring and terrible, which, you know, sometimes we have to sit through those as students, Uh maybe even as professionals from time to time, then actually what I remember is that it was boring and I wasn't engaged. I don't even really remember like the specifics of why I wasn't engaged. I just remember, well, that felt like a waste of an hour. Exactly. Yeah, I think. And then sometimes I'll even go so far as to say, well, maybe that person was just having a bad day or maybe they didn't, they haven't had the chance to really work on those presentation skills. And I'll, you know, usually try to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. You're really good at this, Sarah. You're really good at it. Well, not always, but. Self-coaching. Yeah. Yeah. Talking yourself through things. Thank you. That's nice to hear. I've had a lot of practice. I think I, I think I grew up pretty darn anxious. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you, so would you encourage someone to actually write down the challenge statement if they're willing to do it? Yeah, it, it is. Okay. It is really helpful when you're when you're learning to actually write down these thoughts, right? Because it's easier to see patterns if you, even if you just, you know, took a day and decided that you were gonna really pay attention and jot down your thoughts that day, right? You would probably start to see some patterns emerging. And and then, yeah, writing out these challenge statements can be really helpful too, because it, it slows us down. It makes us think. It gives us a, a time and a space to, to focus on doing this kind of work. When I work with students, for counseling using these strategies, I often, if the student is willing, and sometimes it's, it's really challenging because students are so busy, um, and I get that, but, um, you know, I do ask them if they're willing to do a little bit of counseling homework, and a big part of that is, you know, tracking your thoughts and bringing them back in and learning to say, okay, this thought is, you know, an example of catastrophic thinking or, or whatever it is and working together to come up with the challenges and then practice, practice, practice. You know, you have to practice um, new patterns of, of thought. 
What are the benefits that you've observed when a student is willing to regularly practice this? Mm. You know, if students are willing to to really put that the little bit of effort in and track their thoughts and become aware of their patterns and, and work on the challenges, sometimes we see really dramatic shifts in a pretty short period of time, right? With people coming in and saying that they're they're not they're not thinking those thoughts is often, um, and when they are, they're able to catch them and kind of nip them in the bud. Um, Over time with practice, people develop new patterns of thought to the point where the old ones are are really kind of irrelevant. So, you know, these strategies are really effective if, if people actually do them. So, Felicia, as you're talking about those benefits, right, of being able to interrupt, almost like for me, it can feel like a runaway train. Yeah of my thoughts and it's heading, you know, into a brick wall. It's not taking me anywhere good, but being able to really begin to tune in and interrupt and challenge those cognitive distortions or all or nothing kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. How does that, where we started, where we were talking about the body and the way the body gets activated. Yeah. I mean, our, our thoughts feed right back into that. Right. And um, because the, the stressor can be real or imagined. It can be in the environment or something that's in our own mind, right? And so when we're thinking those extreme thoughts, our brains really respond to, to those um, with the fight or flight response. So it's, it's circular, right? And then once the system is activated and the thinking becomes more fear-based and survival-based, you're, you're going to have more of those thoughts you're you're basically already set up to have those thoughts and then anytime you're in a situation where those thoughts become really prominent it's like a feedback loop back into the the fight or flight system it's like a chicken and egg after a certain point both both things are vital if you really want to make progress on this Mm -hmm. but you could start with one or the other yes if if you've got an easier maybe feel like one would be easier than the other as a place to start. Yeah. Yep. And some people, you know, just the idea like, okay, for now, I'm just going to breathe for five minutes a day. Right. Um, And that's, that's my starting point when they see that that can be helpful, ready to try something else. But yeah, starting anywhere. I wonder, yeah, starting anywhere and, and, and practicing, Mm -hmm. practicing. Um, I wonder if we could talk for a moment about trauma. Because, you know, trauma, as I understand it, I mean, I've heard it described in a lot of different ways. One simple way of thinking about it is any experience that has overwhelmed our capacity to cope can send us into that like fight or flight or even with trauma, there can be a freeze response where we just start to totally shut down. But I wonder like if if someone, I'm imagining, you know, students I've worked with who would say, I was bullied. You know, I was bullied and brutally bullied during my childhood, or maybe even just a little bit of bullying. But we know that those experiences can be so painful and really stay with people and get kind of folded into how we come to look at ourselves. And so how would you, if I was a student coming to to see you and I was really anxious and, and I had bullying in my background. How would you work with me on that? Would these skills still apply? 
or is, is there some other stuff that you'd want to, you know, help me with as well? What would that look like? Trauma is tricky, right? Um, because we know that that trauma, the physiological changes that happen during trauma can be even more severe, right, than um, than other kinds of daily stressors. And those chemical changes that happen in the brain actually change the brain structurally. And so it, this is especially true with early trauma, right? And so it kind of sets up physiological patterns that can really be persistent over the lifespan and you know something like bullying that even by definition is something that's repeated right something that's repeated something that that can be experienced as life-threatening right or threatening to your your sense of yourself or your sense of of what's important to you and what your values are or your and your sense of belonging right and we need to we need belonging Absolutely. Safety and belonging. Yep. It makes it seem like the environment isn't safe. The environment isn't safe, right? Either from a physical sense or an emotional sense or both. So, so having to be in that environment for, for any length of time, of course, you're going to develop coping strategies, right? That are, that are fear-based and that, um, that are necessary in the, the moment um, to get through those experiences, but over time, you know, really do help establish patterns that might not be helpful in other kinds of situations or at other points in life, right? So, right, could prevent us from having experiences that could be really healing, for example. And so, yes, these skills are still applicable um, with some cautions, right? And cautions, especially around the the physiological pieces, because um, sometimes people have been in situations, the trauma may have made it not safe to let your guard down, right? And so it, it can be really difficult for some people to feel like they are letting their like you, you might have that experience when you're doing diaphragmatic breathing or other kinds of relaxing techniques, right? Um, it doesn't feel safe once you let your guard down, thoughts can creep in, memories can creep in, and even just on a basic physiological level, it, it doesn't feel safe. So, you know, easing your way into those techniques and shorter practice periods, being very kind and gentle with yourself, not being hard on yourself if if those practice sessions are feeling unpleasant, almost like, you know, exposure, kind of reconditioning yourself to, to understand that it's okay to kind of take a, a mental break, let your guard down a little bit. Right. It might start with just being able to practice three to five breaths. Yeah. Setting up the environment so that you know you're safe. You're in a private, calm space, you know, shades down, doors locked, whatever you need to do to to feel safe or to, to, you know, be open to the idea of trying a lot of different relaxation techniques to see what might be more uh, comfortable and allow you to, you know, to practice a little bit more consistently. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I was also thinking that where there's been trauma, sometimes having that safe relationship with a therapist can be so healing like that you're learning these still skills in the context of someone who really cares about you and isn't judging you and can support you. Having a safe space in the counselor's office to, to learn and start to practice these techniques. 
Um, and similarly, when you're looking at th thought patterns that might have developed, going back to to um, the example of of bullying, right? You might have started to internalize some of the the messages that that you were getting from the perpetrators, or you know, it might have created self doubt or fear, like we were talking about before, and a lack of safety. And so looking at those thought patterns can also feel really difficult, right? I mean, who wants to go back there and kind of re-experience some of those things, right? So again, caution and only going at the pace that feels comfortable. And, you know, hopefully we're working with a supportive counselor who can help you recognize how looking at these patterns is is impacting you in the moment so that you can um, be attuned to that the whole way through, kind of tailoring it um, as you need to. It sounds like you're saying be very gentle with yourself in this process. Gentle, self-compassionate, patient with yourself, absolutely. Yeah. This has been a lovely conversation. I've learned a lot. Is there anything else you want to add? And I will. I always have like this one last question that I throw in is, how have you worked with these practices in your own life, Felicia? Yeah, I mean, I, I really have been using them, gosh, even before I went to graduate school to become a psychologist, I was using some of these things. And, you know, the physiological things have been, really important for me. You know, the breathing for sure. Also meditation. I just find that I'm a much calmer, more centered, more rational person when I'm doing these things on a regular basis. Um, I think I mentioned before that the breathing in particular, I use it, you know, pretty much nightly to help myself go to sleep. There was even a time where I had to have a medical procedure and it was one where I wasn't, you know, given any um, medication. It was a brief medical procedure, but very uncomfortable. And I used the the diaphragmatic breathing and I got so into it that at the end, the, the doctor was like, are you okay? You know, it's over. And like, I, I wasn't even aware that, it, that the procedure had even happened and was over because I was so deeply relaxed from doing the diaphragmatic breathing. So it's really been a lifesaver for me. And as far as the cognitive part, that is, you know, something that I've also practiced um, and can use. And I'm not going to lie, it's an ongoing, <laughs> it's an ongoing process, um, you know, because I think you know, I started out with a fair amount of anxiety as well. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's been something that I've had to really commit to on a long-term basis to, to keeping under wraps. Thanks for sharing that. And, and same here, you know, same here. That's part of what I think sometimes our own struggles with that stuff lead, leads us into this field to begin with. So I think so too. Yeah. Thank you, Felicia. Any, anything else? You, I mean, that's a great place to stop unless there's anything else you want to add. Mm, just a plug for the CWC website, right? Um, lots of really good um, relaxation strategies and little guided meditations um, on our website, as well as numerous apps that students have found helpful. Um, Headspace is one that a lot of students like, you know, or even just going online and Googling five-minute relaxation strategies, right? Um, a number of things will come up and you can just kind of see what works for you or go ahead and Google the diaphragmatic breathing, um, and get a little tutorial for that and, you know, just kind of start to 
try some of these things. And try them more than a couple of times before yes. you make up your mind. <laughs> okay. Yes. yes. Thank you so much, Felicia. It was great to talk. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. For new episodes, show notes, and to leave feedback or suggestions, please visit counseling.ufl.edu slash CWC Talks.